To the word of the Lord in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through the end of the book. Let us follow along and read together. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Well, thank you guys again for gathering with us here this morning. My name is Eric Baker, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Mission Church. And so on behalf of those um, who are gathered here today, call this our church home. Thank you guys for gathering with us. Um, also, those who may be logging in on Facebook today, Facebook Live, thank you for joining us as well. So when we come to Exodus chapter 17, again, the Israelites have been delivered out of, uh, out of Egypt. Uh, God has saved them. He has redeemed them. He has delivered them. And now it's about two months down the road, and they're on their way to Sinai, eventually going to the promised land in Canaan. But it's going to take a long time for them to get there, and all of that is strategic in God's providence in placing them in such a plan and place. And the Bible, as we get to this, as we've seen over the last several weeks in the early on in their journey, these people had some real needs. They were thirsty and the water was nasty. So God had to bring them some water. They were hungry and God had to bring them manna from heaven. Uh, they were thirsty again, but this time it wasn't that the water was just poisonous, it's that they had no water at all. And so we saw last week as, as, as God told Moses to hit the rock, and he hit the rock, and then all of the, the water came gushing forth for the Israelites. And so they're camped out at this oasis for some time. It's almost like they, they go camping for a little while. Then they travel, then they camp for a little while, then they travel, they camp. This is pretty much going to be the process for about 40 years for them in this time. But something really interesting happens inside of this passage of Scripture. It tells us here that after they've had these kind of food experiences, 
that all of a sudden we meet, then Amalek came and fought with Israel. Now, if you remember back into Exodus chapter 13, if you've been with us that long, um, inside of Exodus chapter 3, God takes the Israelites the long way around the Philistines. Why? Because he's scared of how they're going to respond to war, right? And then you get to Exodus chapter 14, and, and, and they're at the Red Sea, remember, and they're, they're trapped between the, the Israelites, excuse me, the Egyptians and the Red Sea, and, and God makes them go back and even entraps them even more, and they're like, what are we going to do? Moses has led us out here to die, and Moses raises the staff of God, the, the land splits in, in half, or excuse me, the water splits in half, they walk across on dry land and and in that moment God is flexing he's showing off and he tells Moses and he tells the people he's like here's what you need to do fear not stand firm and see that salvation of the Lord he will work for you the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent so God tells them in in Exodus 13 hey we're going to talk the long way it's not time for us to fight yet it gets ready to have a fight, and he tells them, hey, just stand there and be quiet and watch me work. You don't have to fight for this when I'm going to fight. And then we get to chapter 17. We get to chapter 17, and we meet the Malachites. The Malachites. Amalek. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, that's okay. You've come to a good place. Because one thing we do do here very well and try to do very well is to teach you the Bible. And the Amaleks, or Amalek and the Amalekites, they are the descendants of a guy from the, the first book inside your Bible called Genesis. There were these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, right? And they were at war with each other. They kind of make up at the end of their little section inside of Genesis, um, but we, we find out from that moment that all of Esau's kids become all of these nations and their grandkids become all of these nations and they can't stand Jacob, who is an Israelite. And so these people groups are at war with each other. And so the, the Malachites can't stand Israel. This is their first encounter with them. And uh, it appears as though that this, this kind of nomadic group of people um, are going to be at war with each other even later on inside of the Old Testament. And so we get here is this picture that these people are, again, we're looking at 200,000 plus to several million people in the middle of the desert heading toward a place called Mount Sinai. And so the people who walk a little slower, unlike if you drive up 65, the left lane let me help you. The left lane is for going fast. The right lane is for going slow. Like I got people in my family, my dad, that never moves out of the left lane, no matter what his speed is, right? Is he the only one? All right. right. Left lane, fast lane, right lane, slow lane. If you're going slow, the speed limit or below, you're on this side, right? Stragglers, are in the back. 
And so we see that in the middle of the desert, there aren't these roads, or not traffic signs, or not maps, or not any of these things, but the people are going. And so naturally, who falls to the back of 200,000 plus or 2 million people? Well, the slower people do. Women, children, the disabled, all of these sorts of things appear to be in the background of this massive mob picking up dust through the desert. Well, how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 through 19, it talks about this event again. And it says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off from your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. We see this picture that as the people are starting to pick up and as they're starting to leave, that, that, that the enemy, Amalek, is, is swiftly coming through, probably on horses and all these sorts of things, and they're taking out the back. So people are losing their lives. The disabled, the sick, the weak, the young. They're losing their lives. Why? Because they're in the back and Moses is two million possibly people in front of you. And so this, this strategy of the enemy here is to, 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 you know, to kill, to take all of the wealth and the people from the back. They're attacking. They're, they're, they're flanking this large group of people. And it upsets an almighty God. See, when you mess with God's people, the Bible explains to us over and over and over again that you're messing and attacking God. So in these next few verses, now that we know who Amalek is, we, we see in verses 9 through 13 what takes place. Well, what is Moses going to do? He's the leader. These people have not been to boot camp. These have been slaves for 430 years. And so Moses derives this plan, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. So Moses said to, follow along with me in, in verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and they fought with Amalek. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek Prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took some of the stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and on the other side. So his hands were steady until the, they were, until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So imagine just for a moment, you got to kind of clue into the text and context here, is that we've got this guy named Moses. At this time, Moses is about 80 years old. And Moses understands that we've got to go to fight these people. We are at war with the Amalekites. We're at war with these people, but here's going to be our strategy. He's got this young man that you, you can read an entire book in the Bible about Joshua. Um, it's a great book, but this is the first time that we meet Joshua, and he becomes like the young Padawan, the protege of Moses. He becomes the, the next leader for the people of Israel. But this is the first time that we meet him. So he goes to this younger guy and he goes, 
All right, Joshua, here's the deal. I want you to gather up our strongest warriors, our, our best Israelite ninja group or special seals force, whatever they are, and I want you to go fight these people, and now I'm going to go up on top of a hill and watch this all take place. But Moses goes up on top of the hill, overlooking this battle that's taking place. And he takes that shepherd's staff, the staff of God, as the Bible would tell us, and he begins to raise that over his hands, over his head. And the Bible tells us that in this passage, that every time that, that he has it raised, what's taking place? They're winning. But whenever Moses gets tired and when he gets weary and when he gets alone and when he, he feels like, man, I, I can't take any more of this weight. Because a broomstick doesn't weigh very much, does it? But you hold that broomstick over your head for 10 minutes today. You hold that broomstick over your head for 15 minutes today. You hold that broomstick for 30 minutes. Give it an hour. See how long you can make it. I mean, you got some young strapping fellows right here. So the Vanderpools, you guys have a competition, right? I'll, I'll buy you some Chick-fil-A if you do it. Whoever wins, they all work at Chick-fil-A. But I, I'll buy you some um, and, and, and see what that would be like. And so me and Pastor Justin, we were talking about this passage just last week. It must have been really, I mean, because again, our, we have a weird sense of humor. But we were just thinking about this image of all these warriors, you know, calling the barbarians, these people just, you know, slaying each other. And then there's an old man with his buddies and his brother, who's even older than he is, standing next to him. And her, which in Hebrew means whitey, and I think that's funny, um, that's a preacher joke. But it really does mean whitey. What's your name? Whitey. Right? Everybody needs a whitey friend. We see this taking place on this moment as these people are all wrestling and fighting. And, and we just got this humorous kind of conversation taking place. It's like, I just wonder what that was like. As Moses raised his staff and they're like overtaking all the Amalekites. But then as soon as he lowers it, is it like instantaneous? Like, oh, 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 oh. You know, as he's doing this. But Moses is... Y'all who know me and Justin, y'all just picture that in your mind that that was, and that's, Justin was like, ah, ah, ah. all right? <laughs> but we see that in this moment, that when the staff was lifted high, they were winning the battle. But as a human man, as he began to grow weak, and they couldn't see the staff, what happened? They would begin to be overtaken. And so her and Aaron, first they gather a rock and they slide it up under Moses so that he can at least prop himself up on this rock. And then as his arms are coming down, you get this picture of them just holding around him on each side and they're, they're holding up this brother's arms so that the Israelites can see the staff of God, the rod of God up above them on the hillside. And when they can see that, they are winning. They need the support. Moses needs the support. And what happens? The Israelites, they prevail. They prevail. The next section there, after the battle has already taken place, um, we see in verses 14 through 16 that now there's this, like, this worship that takes place. 
the people kind of, this is the pattern of the Israelites, they kind of grumble and complain against God and against Moses, and then God redeems them, he, he, he does some miracle for them, he, he beats their enemies, so on and so forth, and then what do they do? They, they turn right around and they begin to worship him. And so on top of that, that hill, that mountain where Moses was propped up, um, the Bible tells us here what takes place then. Notice that in this worship section here in verses 14 and following, that Moses is not the one who's being worshipped because he lifted up the, the staff. But rather, who's being worshipped? Well, God is being worshipped. God is being worshipped. It wasn't like, all right, Joshua. I mean, Joshua comes back. He's covered in mud and blood. And he's got cuts probably all over him. He's dragging his sword back up to the to the hillside. Of, but they've won. So he's still covered in all that stuff. But he, you know, they're so excited. We've won. Right? The Israelites. Yay. We've won this battle. But they go up on top of the hill. Moses is there. They're excited. And they're not, they're not patting Joseph, excuse me, Joshua on the back and Moses on the back. Who are they celebrating? Who are they honoring? Who are they worshiping? They're honoring God. Because they knew and understood that the, the only reason why they won this was because of God himself. It was because of God. They didn't worship Moses. They didn't worship Joshua. They only worshiped God. So God tells Moses to do what? All right, here's what I need you to do. I need you to write this down in his memory book. And I need you to continue to whisper this moment to Joshua. You need to continue to remind this young man who fought in this battle because what does God know? He knows everything. And God knows the battles that are coming. And if you want a really good, like, manly book or if you've got ten, teenagers and I wish they could make a really good movie out of it that didn't start Kirk Cameron and, and it'd be about Joshua, right? And you see all of these battles taking place in Joshua. You're going to see them win. You're going to see them lose. You're going to see them win. You're going to see them lose. You're going to see all these sorts of things. But, but God is orchestrating a memory book. He's, he's, he's writing down these memories so that, that Moses, while he's still living with Joshua, can remind him and remind him and, and teach him and disciple him over and over and over again. Remember what God did in that first battle against the Amalekites. Remember Joshua. Why? Because like you and I, Joshua is prone to forget. We're prone to forget. The camp high doesn't last very long. The revival high doesn't last very long. And he needs to be reminded. He needs to be reminded. He's going to blot out these enemies, and eventually that's exactly what God does inside the Old Testament. I mean, how many of you guys know, like, I'm an Amalekite. Anyway, he does exactly those things. It says that Moses creates an altar, and on that he says and writes and de de declares that on this altar, on this place, is the Lord is my banner. It says the word Lord there in big capital words, and so that means the, the proper name of God, which is Yahweh, and then the banner word is Nisei. So Yahweh, Nisei, you may have heard this growing up called Jehovah Nisei, but it means the Lord is my 
banner. The Lord is my banner. So he makes this big altar on top of the hill and he declares, the Lord is my banner. But what does the word banner mean here? Well, of course, banner means sign, but also means a standard. It means a single wooden pole. Think a flag pole. From history, this is common practice that if you've seen war movies or a movie like Gladiator or even like Braveheart, but even if you've studied history, if you've not seen those movies, but if you've actually studied history, what are armies always known by? Their colors, their flags. This is how you know this is where our people are. This is where you people are. I mean, have you ever seen those movies where people, like even in ancient times, people ride in, they got armor on, right? They've got a big old horse, a big sword. They've got bows and arrows. They've got spears and shields and all this sort of stuff. And then you see the guy just packing the flag. Like, who wants to be that guy? I want to, I want to be on the stallion. But we see that this, this symbols, man, even this idea of because kings would go off to battle in ancient times. They didn't fight from an office. They fought from the front lines. And so there would be flags and, and these tall poles that would signify where this is where our leadership is. Because if you get misplaced, if you get out in, in, in a place where you don't need to be, or if you get hurt and injured, you need to know where is home, where is the sanctuary, where can you run to to find help and significance in all of these things for your journey and for your life. Wasn't it the 60s? There was this thing called the space race. And if we actually did land on the moon, I know some of y'all wrestled with that back then. What, what did we do when Americans stepped foot on the moon? We planted a flag. We're symbolizing, man, we, we are here. We been here. We have landed here. Something significant happened in this moment. And so Moses is declaring as they're worshiping God for the victory that has now come to them. As, as they fought, yes, there was also a spiritual battle going on. And yes, people have tried to, to, to debate over and over and over again, what was Moses really doing by lifting the staff? Was he praying? Was he interceding? All these sorts of things. And simply put, in this particular passage, we don't really know and I think sometimes we have a tendency to mutter, um, kind of muddy the waters a little bit because ultimately the staff is, as the Bible describes it, is God's staff. It was a representation. It was a symbol of God himself. So Moses declares in this moment, the aftermath of this huge battle in this place, that God is our banner, that God is our hope, that God is our standard, that God is our fortress, that God is our hiding place, that our, our stronghold, our dwelling place, that God is our warrior, that that God is our defender, that God is our king, our king. And so in this moment, he kind of rams this, you get this picture that they probably even physically put this huge pole in the ground there at this altar, declaring that it was on this place. And in this moment, God did something again for his people. Let us not forget that God is our banner. He is our banner. So from this story this morning, how can we be encouraged? 
Well, I think there's several ways that we can be encouraged here. The first way is this. is This is such a picture of the Christian life. It's such a picture of the Christian life. I told you a few weeks ago when we transitioned out of chapter 15 that pretty much chapters 1 through 15 inside the book of Exodus is all about salvation. It's all a picture pointing to you toward the Christian life of, of being a slave to sin, a redeemer coming, and you being set free on a new path toward a, a promised land, and that all of that, according to Scripture, is pointing to what it means to be saved in Jesus, right? And for those first 15 chapters, what did the Israelites do to honor and to, to, to get their salvation? Nothing. They did nothing. It was always God saying, I'm going to do this, 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 and eventually Pharaoh is going to let you go. And then when we get outside the city gates, I'm going to destroy this Pharaoh. And you're not going to pick up a sword, you're not going to pick up a rock, you're not going to be throwing fruit or, or bones or, or, or jewelry or anything at these people. Sit back, stand up, watch me work. And then we get to chapter 16. And there's a switch that happens inside the book of Exodus. As we go from these first 15 chapters of looking at salvation, of which you and I, just like the Israelites, were completely passive in. This is all God's doing. And yet from 16 through the rest of the book of Exodus, it's the picture of sanctification. It's the picture of growing in Christ's likeness. It's the picture of, okay, now that I've saved you, how are you going to live your life? And so God even is testing the people. Okay, when it gets really tough, what do they run to? Do they run to these things or that thing or that over there or this over there? Or do they run to me, right? That's what we've seen in all these food testings that are taking place. He's testing them right now. Okay, when, when they really come up against a physical adversary, which is representative of Satan's sin and death itself, and the sinful desires of our own bodies and our own flesh, Amalek is often equated to flesh. It's this picture of flesh of coming after you, trying to seek, trying to destroy you. And inside of this picture that we have read today, we're beginning to see once again this picture of, of not just salvation, but of sanctification. And in sanctification, guess what happens? You and I are responsible in participating. We're responsible in participating in that process. None of this, oh, if the Lord wants me to grow, He'll just make me grow. But if the Lord wants me to learn the Bible, then I'll just put it under my pillow at night and through osmosis, suck it into my brain, and then I'll wake up the next morning, and I'll be it. If the Lord wants me to be evangelist, then I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and not really use my mouth to share the gospel. I'm just going to pray for so-and-so's salvation. I mean, if I really want our church to grow, then I'm just going to pray that it'll grow. I mean, if I, if I really want our finances to, to grow at the church, for that this could happen, or if I, if I want this to take place in my life, if I, that I'm just going to sit back, and that's, that's the picture that a lot of us can fall into, is this passivity in our following of Jesus. And yet, what do we see taking place here? God is saying, hey, 
I am the warrior here. I'm the one that's going to fight. Ultimately, this battle isn't really contingent on, on Moses and on Joshua alone, but ultimately, this is what I am going to you. But hey, Joshua, get out there and fight. Moses is going to fight, but he's going to fight in a different way. This is the picture of the Christian life. Hey, brothers and sisters, wake up. We are still at war. And if I can say that to you, and you're like, that's really strange that he's saying to me, and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you don't get that anxiety that I'm feeling right now, even by mentioning it to you, then let me, let me help you with something. Something's up. We are at war, friends. It's as Peter would tell us in the New Testament. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What is a, I've watched enough Discovery Animal Planets to know that when lions and lionesses and all those sorts of uh, critters out there, those predatory critters, they're, they're not going for the all-star gazelles. Who are they going for? The weak. The lame. Stragglers in the back. See, our temptation here is to, when we think about this idea of spiritual warfare, and you're like, oh yeah, I get, I, I get this, Pastor Eric, I get this. Well, our, our temptation is to fall into two camps. Our temptation in the Christian life is to fall into two camps. It's like when you hear this battle, you're like, oh, you become passive, right? It's like, no, but, but the battle belongs to the Lord. I just got to sit here and be silent, right? That's what he tells us inside the battle. I don't have to battle here. I can just sit back in my lazy boy and that, that God's got me. He saved me. And the preacher says, since I repeated, uh, you know, I repeated this prayer, I got, I got wet in the baptistry. I became a member of the church. But I'm good. Like, we're all good. Now I'm just going to live my life however I want to live my life. That's the enemy speaking to you. And yet likewise, what some of us are prone to do is we become really aggressive in this, don't we? Oh, the Bible says I've got to fight. The preacher said I've got to fight. Well, well what do I need to do? I, I've, got to, I've got to do this. 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 I've got to, I've got to make sure that they give, give me all, all, all of the, the medals that I'm deserving, that I'm, I'm saluted, that God is, is proud of me, and that in some way I'm going to earn this this great gift that God has given me, but it's all on me, it's all on me, it's all on me, I'm not me, 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 me. So you're aggressive at just pulling up your, your, your bootstraps, putting them on, and just like, oh, you got to grind this out in hopes that God will save you. That's the temptations of every, you fall into one of those camps inside this room, most of us do. Of being really laissez-faire, or being really aggressive and religious, And yet the gospel reminds us, fight, but I am the Lord who fights for you. I've defeated the enemy, and yet there are still battles that are waging for your heart. One day that's going to come to a complete end, but we're not there yet. It would be as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up your whole armor of God so that you be able to withstand the in the evil day and having done all to stand. See, there is this battle that is taking place here. We're encouraged by Paul to, to know the word, to practice the word, that, this, that in this, there is this physical and spiritual way to engage in these battles. We need both to be Moses and to be Joshua. A spiritual battle. And it is a spiritual battle. You know, all this racism stuff that we see inside of our culture, all of the, gosh, even, Lord have mercy, the Southern Baptist Convention is gathering in Nashville this week, and it is, it is an absolute mess, what is happening in the denomination that we are a part of. And there's lots of letters being written and names pointing. To me, I just think it's really embarrassing. But man, it can be... Can be our, our, our temptations get really amped up over these things. I mean, not just at those sorts of levels, political levels, but even even your neighbor. You know, if you put your grass clippings on on his property, he may come beat you up for that, right? And the temptation is to, is to think, well, man, my my man, my my problem is my husband. My problem is my kids. My problem is my neighbor. My problem is this person of race or this legal immigrant or illegal immigrant or Democrat or independent or Republican. Or, or oh man, we got to get riled up. You got to pick a side. Pick a side. You better pick a side, pick a side, pick a side, pick a side. And you better be just boisterous about whatever side that is. But the scripture would tell us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. See, all of that stuff is a spiritual battle. And it has to be fought spiritually and physically. What do I mean by that? Spiritually is, Lord Jesus, help me to read your word more so that when I'm tempted with whatever it may be, that I can use the word as a sword to put to death that sin. All right? So you pray. That's a spiritual thing, right? And then the Lord wants you to go read the Bible. That's the physical. It is still spiritual, but it is a physical happening, right? Man, I've seen, I didn't work on my prayer life. Anybody ever said that before? I'll say that to you right now. Like, my prayer life is up. All right? And it's going to continue to stay at that level until I get on my knees and pray. It's a spiritual thing that has external consequences. Does that make sense? It has external fruit to it. So we have Joshua, the enemy, God, sometimes, guess what he does? Whoop, he just swipes him off the face of the earth with his mighty hand. Most of the time, though, he puts a sword in your hand. And he says, go fight. And as Christians, how do we fight? We pray, we read the word, we evangelize, we devote ourselves to the church, all of these sorts of things are the weapons, the spiritual weapons of fighting a very spiritual and physical war that is taking place. 
But we need to understand when I'm talking about physical, your ultimate problem is not flesh and blood sitting next to you. It's demonic forces. It's sin. It is that war for the hearts of both of you. The second thing that we can be encouraged by this, and this is a brief one, I'll pick this back up some other time, probably next week actually. Moses was not Jesus. Moses was a weak man. Moses was a weary man. He was a shadow of Christ, yes. He was pointing to a true and greater Christ, yes. And how do we know that? Because of passages like this. Because the leader got weary. The leader got tired. Let me remind you, like we do in our membership classes, none of your pastors are Jesus. We're human broken men. We grow weary and tired. And as you often come to us with this, that, and the other, and all these things that you're going on, I'm speaking at a thing on this Thursday, on this very thing, is that we often don't have anyone to go to. It's a picture of that, and I'm so glad to have this picture inside the Bible. Because Moses needed an Aaron. Moses needed a her. He needed brothers and sisters to huddle around each other in those moments of deepest and darkest need. Because brothers and sisters, if you're involved, truly involved in the church long enough, we will all take turns of being in the position sometimes of being the Moses position. Some of you are in leadership, whether it's in your organization or self-employed or the school system or whatever it may be. It gets really lonely at the top. And yet the, the Bible has never described it to be that way. It should be a community huddled around each other in those moments. And you're going to have to carry that load. I mean, why didn't, they just say, why didn't God just come down and say, oh, okay, now, Aaron, it's your turn. We're going to set the timer. And Aaron's like, because <laughs> he's like 90. Right? Keep on it. You know, Moses over here eating a sandwich, right? <laughs> All right, Whitey. Your turn. The rod of Moses is for that moment. The baton had been given to who? To Moses. That's why we have a plurality of elders here at Mission. Because one man can't do this. Jesus is your lead pastor, not Eric Baker. And anytime you get that messed up, you're going to be really disappointed in me. And guess what? I'm disappointed in you. Still a tug. <laughs> Magic fingers. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to frustrate each other. We're not going to agree with each other. Man, 
that community, that church, so important to the Christian life. If you're going to finish well. Following Jesus is tough. Especially alone. Number three. Be reminded. Be reminded that Jesus, he is the ultimate banner. I believe that the Lord's staff was a symbol of God's power and provision for his people. It was a reminder of his presence with them. It pointed them to him. So you're in the midst of this sword fight, but you can get a glimpse out of your peripheral of of Moses with the the, the rod, the staff of God on top of that hill. And and it would incite you and impassion you to continue on this fight. It was to point to them. It was God's presence. Be reminded, I am with you. He is with us. In Numbers chapter 21, there's this other story that's going to take place. It's not recorded in the book of Exodus. It's recorded in the book of Numbers. It's one of my favorite stories because inside the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, after you get all of those numbers in those first few chapters, because that's hard to read, but if you get to the end of the book, there's some good reading right there. You get to Numbers chapter 21, and guess what the Israelites are doing in the middle of the wilderness? They're complaining. They're whining. And so God sends a test. Anybody remember what the test is? The Bible tells us that he sends venomous snakes to discipline his people, to judge his people. And they start dying. So they come to Moses and they repent. We're sorry. We've complained against you. We've complained against God. We're, we're so sorry for tired and being whining and all these sorts of things, complaining about all this sort of stuff. And so Moses, the Bible tells us, goes and he prays. He prays to God and this is what God tells him to do. I want you to go to the hill where you guys are encamped, or in the land where you guys are encamped, and I want you to put a banner. I want you to put a flagpole in the middle of the camp. And then I want you to take, because y'all like to make all these graven images and things, is I want you to take uh, this bronze, and I want you to melt it down in the form of a serpent, wrap it around this staff. And as you're walking and doing your daily life, as these venomous snakes come out, once you get bitten, if you will look... To the banner. If you will look to the staff, if you will look to the standard, it wasn't that it was magic, it was what the bronze serpent on the staff was pointing to. It was what it was reminding them of. It was reminding them of the presence of God that they could not find healing among themselves, but they needed something greater, and that was God. And again, like us, like them, we are easy to forget. And so Moses, you shall not pass, if you're Gandalf, sorry, nerd joke, you, you shove it into the ground, and you let everyone know that when you get bit by the enemy, when you get bit by this venomous snake, look to the staff and you'll be healed. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus picks this up. If you remember the story of Nick at night, Nicodemus and Jesus in John chapter 3, Jesus brings up this very passage and he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus, upon the cross, ladies and gentlemen, is the banner. It is 
the staff that was planted on this very earth to be a reminder for you and I that in this battle that we call life, in this war that many of us who follow Jesus are actually on, that, that Jesus himself died upon the banner. He died upon the staff. He died upon the standard. He is the representation. He is the flag post for the very kingdom of God. Jesus is led outside of the city. And where is he placed? He's placed on a stick on a hill outside of town. Look to the cross. Is the cross God? Absolutely not. But it points to God. Each week I preach strategically below a cross. It is not placed there flippantly. It is not placed there just as a means of Christian art. It is placed for you specifically to, to have full, full vocal, like, like to be able to see it clearly. That the, the focus of all that we're doing every single Sunday in all of life is to, to come and to gather and to live out while keeping our eyes upon the banner, to keeping our eyes upon the cross. It is because Jesus is our banner. And it is an empty cross. You don't put Jesus on the cross in Protestant churches. Why? Because He is not there. Why do you search among the dead for the living? It's an empty cross in Christian churches, in Protestant churches. Why? Because it is that reminder that Jesus, who went alone to be placed upon that staff, upon that hill, has already won and defeated the enemy in the resurrection. The cross is the rallying point for Christians, a diverse group of people, black, white, a rich, poor, Hispanic, Japanese, uh, uh, Chinese, all of these sorts of, all these people groups that at the cross, it is the rallying point for all of us who have been saved, not by any work of our own, but saved by God, that we can look to the cross, be reminded, and we rally around. We are healed there. We're reminded there of who God is and what He has done for us. We are God's People, Let us not forget the centrality of the cross. It is the gospel that is both our greatest weapon and our greatest hope. It is both the staff and the sword. Drifting towards sin, we grow weary, we grow tired of fighting. Brothers and sisters, look to the cross. Look to the banner. Look to Jesus the question, if you remember in chapter 17, the verse before verse 8 says, the big contention inside of the Israelites was this question. Look at verse chapter 17, verse 8. Is the Lord among us or not? And what does God declare in these passages? I am right here. 
And brothers and sisters, for those of you at war with me, in this foxhole, in this trench with me called following after Jesus, we, we know that victory is, is inside. We know that we are going to win because Jesus has already won. But as, as the, the battle is still waging in this earthly sense, I know that you grow weary as I grow weary. I know that there are days that it just seems like I cannot keep my arms up for these people and for myself absolutely anymore. I'm, I, I'm done. I'm done with trying to carry the weight all of this. And if that is you, like it is often me, look to the cross. Because that's all you got. Look to the banner. It is all you've got. It's all you've got. So much more here. I'll leave you with this word from Timothy. Let's fight the good fight. God is one. But becoming a Christian is a call to arms. And, and instead of, I've used this a long time ago, some of you may remember it when first planted mission, it's like, being a Christian is a call to arms. And we made church into a cruise ship when it should be a battleship. And there's great, good intended people out there riding the good old gospel ship who aren't engaging in battle, but this will not be a church that is a cruise ship. Because we are at war. And the cross reminds us that victory is guaranteed. Let's pray.